and welcome to the Refuge Church Podcast, where we long to see the lost saved, the saved transformed, and the transformed sent. For more information on how you can be a part of Refuge Church, join us on Sunday mornings in Jacksonville at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m., or visit our website at refugejackschurch.com. In this week's podcast, we are continuing our Discipleship Sermon Series formation. Thank you for listening. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Refuge Church. Man, that was kind of good. Good morning, Refuge Church. That's better. I love it, man. I told the first service, I hated when pastors would do that, and here I am doing it to you. So uh, I guess, sorry. So, um, man, grateful to be with you today. I'm reminded um, of a couple things this morning. One, uh, man, the power of the church singing together, that we are reminding each other of, of the truth of Scripture and the gospel. And, man, you singing this morning and us singing just was even just impacting me in both services, reminding us of the goodness of God um, and his gospel and that, man, there is power in the name of Jesus and that we're singing that um, in faith today. And you're reminding me of that as you sing. So grateful for you. Um, the second thing I'm reminded of is some of you need to join the worship team because I hear you singing out there and there's some harmony going on that's out there but probably needs to be up here. So... Do with that what you will. Uh, maybe you're in a section that didn't sound so good, and you're like, what are you hearing? That's fine, too. Uh, we want you to sing regardless. So, hey, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 6 this morning. That's where our main text is going to be. And, uh, man, as you know, we've been in a, forma- a series called Formation uh, over the last month, and we'll continue to be through the month of July. And so the goal of this series is more so a call to the disciple. Uh, man, we want God to form us. Form us into who he wants us to be. He forms us for our good. He forms us for our righteousness. He forms us to draw us deeper into his presence. He forms us to be more like Christ. We are disciples of Christ, and as we are discipled and made more like him, we are formed into a new person. And that is the goal of the formation series. So when we talked about Sabbath and prayer and and um, man, our family worship, and, and today talking about holiness, these are things meant to lead to our deeper formation in Christ. So today, as we talk about the topic of holiness, here's the main point that we need to know today, is that God calls us to be holy, which only happens by knowing a holy God. God calls us to be holy, but that only happens by knowing a holy God. I think when we think of the topic of holiness and we hear that, we think of like moral purity. You know, you think of those really holy people wearing robes and carrying big sticks with things on them. Or maybe somebody just, you have a grandma who would like, like condemn you for saying a certain word and you're like, that lady was holy. That's a church lady right there. Um, but sorry if I just described you. That wasn't meant to be offensive. <laughs> um, but before we know about what the meaning of of holiness is, because holiness is so much deeper than just moral purity. It's part of it, but we need to look at what it means to be holy and and deeper into that, what it means that our God is holy. Our God is holy. So we're going to look at Isaiah 6, a really powerful passage. Um, It's the passage of Isaiah's calling as a prophet. And so this chapter illustrates a dramatic call for Isaiah And so if you look at verse 1, the first couple words there, it says, In the year King Uzziah died, it's in chapter 6, verse 1, King Uzziah is dead. And if you know about, if you've read the book of Kings or um, the book of 1st or 2nd Chronicles, you would know that King Uzziah Uzziah was a 
a decent king. He was, he was beloved uh, by Judah. And, and there were many kings that were not beloved by Judah that had done some wicked things. Um, but King Uzziah was one of the better ones. And he reigned 52 years in Judah. And a lot of uh, his reign was the majority of many Israelites' lives. Um, but his last year, if you read 2 Chronicles 26, don't have to turn there, you can read his story later, was marked by shame. He actually um, sinned against God and, and was uh, condemned with leprosy and was, lived his last year of his life in isolation. But despite the shameful ending of King Uzziah, his life and death brought, well, his death brought national mourning to the nation of Israel. So we can assume that Isaiah, as he approaches the temple in chapter 6, we can assume that he's entering the temple looking for consolation in a time of mourning. However, in his looking to be comforted in the temple, he actually meets the majestic, almighty, terrifying holy God. We're going to read that here in a second. Isaiah knew that the king was dead, and he enters the temple, but he meets with the ultimate king. Isaiah saw the Lord. So that brings us to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two they covered their face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. This passage here, this, this holy, holy, holy is actually the center point of this calling of Isaiah in the chapter here in, uh, in Isaiah 6. And before we, we dive in, I just want to just isolate two words for you, and they're actually the same word. And you're, if you're reading an ESV Bible, you might see Lord at the beginning of verse 1. You see, I saw the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, under lowercase. And then in a few verses later in verse 3, you see, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That Lord is in all caps. So it's important to know that Isaiah refers to the Lord, which that word Lord there actually means Adonai, sovereign king, sovereign one. And then the Lord in verse 3, the all caps is actually Yahweh, which was the sacred unspoken name of God. This was the name of God that he revealed himself to Moses, right, in the burning bush. He said, I am who I am, and, and, and I am Yahweh. And, and so Isaiah, in a time of crisis, in a time of death of the king, sees the Lord, the sovereign one, the title for God here, Adonai. And so we see in verse 2 and 3, this is the center point that I want to really dive into a little bit today. And above God in the temple here, we see this, this word in verse 3. This, this, this calling of the seraphim out to one another. And they say, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. God is holy. So before we even talk about our holiness, we have to look to a holy God and what that means for us. And I want you to take note of the repetition of the word holy here. Some of you guys are way smarter than me, but you know that when we look in Scripture and we see repetition, it's actually a point of emphasis. A Jew would emphasize by repeating in the same way that you might use an exclamation point or a really cool emoji when you text someone. The Jew would repeat things over and over again to add emphasis. And so 
Man, we, we know this. We've seen this. Some examples of this is Jesus in the gospel. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen, I say to you. This is truth. He was emphasizing what he was about to say. On certain occasions, we see, as, in, as well as this passage, a, a, an emphasis to the third degree, where they say things three times in a row. We read in Revelation 8, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 says, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. Not simply holy, church. Not simply holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. To say that God is holy, holy, holy is to say that he is the most holy, totally, completely, unwaveringly, utterly holy. There is none like him. So you're probably wondering, okay, we get it. They're emphasizing his holiness. Okay, what does holy mean? When we say holy, and if you were to go ask a bunch of people, different church backgrounds and stuff, what does holy mean? You're going to get a bunch of different answers. Like I said, we probably first think of moral purity and being upright standing. And, and uh, man, I think of a, a church lady that I grew up with named Miss Linda. She would come in with a big church hat on. She wore long dresses, and she was maybe the holiest lady I ever saw. Um, but again, the root word here of holy actually means to cut or to separate to cut or to separate. So when we apply these things, or we apply this, this holy to things outside of God, things that are holy are set apart unto God. Does that make sense? So the word holy is actually setting things apart unto God. So when we see scripture, it says it's holy ground with Moses in the, in the burning bush. God had set that ground, had declared it holy because his presence was there. Holy of holies, right, in the temple. The holy nation, the nation of Israel was declared a holy nation, set apart the Holy Sabbath, we read that last week, right? Keep the Sabbath holy. That's set apart as rest. God has consecrated it as holy. Tony Evans used this illustration about plates. And I know we all have different types of plates in our house. There are certain plates that you use to eat hot dogs. And you can put ketchup on, right? And you, know, you can throw it in the microwave and heat up a corn dog. These are the things that those plates are used for. And there's also this special cabinet in many of your houses where there are certain plates that never get taken out. And they're only used for the specialist, specialist occasion. And even then, they're probably not used, right? You're like, you start to take them out, that china, and you're like, nope, nope, we're gonna, nope, not going to do that. I'm not going to put my hot dog on that plate. Because those things are set apart. They're holy. They're specific use. And maybe you use them for Thanksgiving or um, man, Christmas with some great, tasteful turkey. And then you wash them and put them back in the cabinet to never be used until the next year. This is the idea that we're trying to get at with holy. It's set apart. It's different. It's cut from what is normal, what we'd assume would be normal. But to say that God is holy is to say that he's set apart. But what is God set apart from? What is God set apart from? The answer is this. God is unique, distinct, different from everything that exists. Part of that is God is transcendent, right? transcendent. He is totally unique from everything, above all, exceeding all limits of measurement. R.C. Sproul says this when he's trying to describe the transcendence of God. He says, he is higher than our world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God and his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance between what separates him from every other creature. Do you hear that? He is infinitely cut above everything else. He is transcendent, infinitely cut above everything else. Part of God's holiness is that he is self-existent. 
Everything in creation is a derivative or is contingent on something else. You woke up this morning not because you made yourself breathe. Someone gave you breath to live, right? You did not choose to be born. Someone made that decision for you. <laughs> and now you're here. You, are, you have required other things to keep you alive. You are not self-existent, but God has always been and always will be. God is holy, self-existent. He is morally perfect and sinless. He is all good and all trustworthy. He is holy. He is holy. And all of this is encompassed together. God's holiness is not just another one of his attributes, church. We say God is love, right? Which he is. We believe he is. God is merciful. Yes, we believe he is. His holiness is not just another attribute of who he is. It's intrinsic to his nature. God himself is holy. To say God is holy means God is God. We see this here. They don't say in this passage, God you are holy or you are love, love, love. Again, you are holy, 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 emphasized. The whole earth is full of his glory. So let's look at verse 3 in Isaiah 6. Let's pick it up here. So again, one called to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. I think it's interesting that a lot of us, myself included, come into church, we sing songs, we hear the word of God, we hear the gospel, and we struggle to lift our hands, we struggle to sing, we struggle to thank and ponder a holy God. Um, but at the very mention of his name, holy, 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 the building begins to shake. The walls and the, the threshold begin to, to break and move. So what that's telling me is the very mention of God in this temple Inanimate objects, metal, wood, doorposts begin to shake in the presence of a holy God. They were doing what they could in response to God's holiness. I've, I don't know if you've ever been in a tornado or a hurricane and you're sitting in your house and your windows begin to like vibrate and you're questioning, is this the moment that we're going to blow away? Is this all what's going on? I think that's kind of what's happening here with Isaiah in the temple. The building is beginning to shake and even more so than what we would experience to the point where... The building is going to come down. There's, there's fear in that. But I, the trembling doesn't stop with the doors in the temple, church. The thing that seems to be the most shaken in this narrative is Isaiah. So look at Isaiah's response in the first part of verse 5. After the call in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The place is shaken at the mention of God's name. And then verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees the living God, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. And that I, when he's saying, woe is me, church, what he's saying and what he's doing is he's calling judgment upon himself. He's in the presence of a holy God, and he says, I deserve justice for my sin, Doom should come upon me. God is so holy, I am not. Therefore, judgment. Woe is me. I deserve wrath. In the Old Testament, many prophets would yell this curse out at other people. But Isaiah calls this curse of woe on himself in the presence of God. Judgment. But not only does he cry out, woe is me, he says, for I am lost. I believe other translations of the Bible actually help us to understand this better. Your Bible may say, I am ruined. Or in the KJV, I am undone. 
The word undone literally means to come apart at the seams. Come apart at the seams. Modern psychologists would describe this as like personal disintegration. Someone literally coming apart. In the presence of God, Isaiah is undone. In the presence of holy, he is undone. Isaiah was considered one of the most righteous men in the nation. He was held in high esteem by his contemporaries. He was both extremely respected because of his virtue and character. He wasn't some bad dude. But one look at a holy God and he is ruined. He is undone. Calling for judgment and destruction upon himself. Wishing that the roof would fall in on him. So why? Why does Isaiah respond this way? He doesn't respond in some worshipful, what we would call worshipful way, where he, he begins singing some beautiful song to God. He responds with, woe is me, I am ruined. I am undone. Look at the answer. Here's the reason why in the second half of verse 5. And I, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees God, and he is immediately undone because of the holiness of God and his blatant obvious, demonstrable sin. Because of God's holiness and his unholiness. So it's important to realize God is holy. The only holy we are not. We deserve to be like Isaiah in the presence of a holy God, ruined, undone, because we have chosen sin, right? Isaiah responds this way because God's holy holiness is evident and his unholiness Isaiah being is clear because of his sin. The gap between him and God are insurmountable, and he knows it. Isaiah knew that there was no hiding. He was a sinner and deserved to be destroyed because God is holy and just and despises sin. So there's this aspect of God's holiness here. We see this in how Isaiah responds, calling judgment on himself in the presence of a holy God, that this idea of holy justice, that God is holy, therefore he is just. So we share the gospel. If you're a Christian, you share the gospel. You probably heard people go, hey, do you know you're a sinner? I've done it, maybe. Um, you know, we have all these techniques of how we want to share the gospel. Really, the question that we should ask is, do you know God is holy? Because if God were not holy, there would be no sin. If God were not holy, there would be no sin. Sin would not be sin. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, our God is a God of faithfulness. Without iniquity, just and upright. So what makes something wrong or right? What makes something sin? We know sin because of God's holiness. Do you hear me? I, I've sat in philosophy class in college, and I know many of you have probably taken philosophy, and those are always really interesting. And there's always these heated debates, especially when the topic of God comes up and deity. And, and obviously most people in those, those settings would be like, there is no God, how could God allow evil? All the, and they would ask all these questions, and it would go round and round. And I would, I would just sit there and sometimes speak up and say, if there is no God, then how do you know what evil is? How do you know what brokenness is? How come we don't just all live our lives and, and, and kill people and do the, like, what is in us that sets wrong and right apart? And it's because God hates sin, Therefore, we are created in the image of a holy God. We have an intrinsic thing that sits deep down because we are created in an image of a holy God. Therefore, we have tendencies to know what right and wrong are. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God hates sin and is so pure he can't look at it. God is the standard of right and wrong. Not only that, but he's the ultimate authority of goodness. 
God in himself is the ultimate good. God is righteous because he cannot and will not deviate from his own standard. A.W. Tozer says, everything in the universe is good to, a, to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. So what does this have to do with God's justice for sin? We struggle greatly with the idea of, of God enacting justice upon the world, right? Sending people to hell. I know many believers who have left the faith because of that idea. We've heard said God is love, an attempt to proclaim that a loving God is and should be lenient toward the sinner. Yet, ironically, we get infuriated when we see injustice in the world, don't we? We call for justice to ring out when children are shot in cold blood, when we see or, or, when we see or hear of hateful racist acts, or young teen girls being sex trafficked in our backyard. Where do you think we get this from? We receive this from the one who we are created in the image of. And we amen that all day. We get excited about that. Yes, until we realize that that justice that God has, that hate to sin, is also pointed at us, the sinner. God, out of his righteousness, sees the law. Sorry, out of God's righteousness, we see the law. And from him, require righteousness from every man and every woman. He requires us to be righteous. He wouldn't be holy if he didn't require justice and us to be an upright heart. When God says, love thy neighbor, he's not suggesting it. Rather, it is a command of a holy God, ratifying glory, worship, and honor unto him alone. I'm going to read that again. When God says, love thy neighbor, he's not suggesting it. Rather, he is commanding us to worship a holy God and him alone. This is what it means in Leviticus 11, right, 44. It says, be holy as I am holy. But what happens when we are disobedient? What happens when God's law is broken, when his beauty is not treasured, his goodness is not savored, his word is not believed? If God is holy, church, he must punish sinners. He must punish sin. This is what we call holy justice. R.C. Sproul says, a loving God who has no wrath is no God. He is an idol of our own making, as much as we have carved him out of stone. We can't see God's wrath towards sin as unjust. Rather, it is complete holy justice. No one, and, and, and here's the idea. Man, we have chosen to sin. Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden. No one forced them to. They were tempted by Satan, but they rebelled against God because the fruit looked good. And they said, this fruit is better than you, God. You've told me what you want and what you commanded, and you've said that you are good, but this fruit looks really good. This looks better. They believed that they could be like God. In the same way, we have chosen not to worship God. We've chosen to stiff-arm his plan and what he has created. J.I. Packer says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen, meaning when we read Scripture, it points out that it is but our own doing that we go there, right? All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Adam decided he wanted death instead of God, and his wish was granted. Man, over all scripture, we see terrifying stories of God's justice upon um, sin and, and, and wrath towards sin and disobedience. In Genesis, right, Noah and the ark, we see God flooding the earth because they were wicked and leaving one family alive um, to repopulate the earth. Also in Genesis, we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked city, the conquest of Cana in the book of 
Joshua. But one of the most interesting stories of God's judgment, and actually probably one of the most terrifying, is when the ark in 2 Samuel is taken back in Jerusalem, um, led by David and, and this guy named Uzzah, who touches the ark. But the ark had been in the land of the Philistines and was now being taken back to Jerusalem, to its rightful place under David's reign. But the ark is being carried on something it's not meant to be carried on. It's being carried and led by oxen, which was disobeying what God had commanded. He had commanded that the Levites on poles carry the ark, and no one should lay a hand on the ark. So they're walking, and they're worshiping, and they're singing, rejoicing that God is returning. His presence is returning to Israel, and the ark begins to fall off the cart. So Uzzah reaches out to catch the ark, the ark, touches it, and is immediately killed, struck down by God. We feel bad for Uzzah when we read this story. It's, it seems like he was really well-intentioned. I struggled with this for a really long time. But what he did was forbidden by God, despite maybe him being well-intentioned. And I think there's a pastor named Mike Cosper who, who really says this simply, and it helps me understand this story. He says that Uzzah simply assumed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt. That he reached out to catch it, assuming that he was cleaner than the dirt, dirt itself. So don't miss this, church. God's anger towards sin is not a response to his damaged ego, nor, his tyrant, nor is he a tyrant king taking pleasure in our pain. The wrath of God is holy justice towards sin. John Murray says, that is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. God cannot leave sin unpunished because he is too holy to do so. Do you hear me this morning? So make this personal to you, and this is where we kind of struggle. If God punishes sin, and Romans says that the wages of sin is death, then why are we all still here? Why are we all still alive? To quote Sproul again, he says, The issue is not... Why does God punish sin, but rather, why does he permit the ongoing rebellion? Because me and you are sinners. We rebel against God every day. In other words, we are the guilty ones, just as guilty as Uzzah reaching and touching the ark, just as guilty as those in Sodom and Gomorrah, yet we do not get what we deserve. For every scripture of wrath, church, there are more stories of God's mercy. Adam and Eve the Israelites in Egypt, the sin of David and Bathsheba, all stories of great mercy of God where he stepped in and forgave and had compassion. In Exodus 33, we read this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But again, this leads us to the dilemma of how can God be holy and merciful to the sinner, past, present, and future, but yet still be holy and just? The answer is clear. God gave his son. God gave his son. Christ alone, you can write this down. This is the gospel. Christ alone satisfies the wrath of God. Sorry, a holy God against sin. Christ alone satisfies the wrath of a holy God against sin. Jesus is the only one good enough to appease God's holy wrath against sin. Christ, innocent, taking the punishment of the guilty. The beauty of the gospel is the sinner receives forgiveness and mercy and also, the righteousness of God is upheld because the justice was enacted on Jesus. 
for your sin and mine. Jackie O'Perry says, The cross reveals God's holiness in how the sinless son was judged on behalf of sinful people so that when God justifies the guilty, he does so without compromising his righteousness. That's good news. Romans 3, you don't have to turn there, you can read this later. 22 through 26 says this, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, the atonement for, by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of, of the one who has faith in Jesus. We read terrifying acts of God's justice in Scripture, His holy justice. But the most awful, yet most glorious, happens in the four Gospels. When God Himself steps down to be beaten, crucified, and killed, taking the cup of God's wrath that was meant for you and I because of our sin, and God would have been justified to do so. Jesus took it. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. This is why we say, Jesus in our place, the death that was meant for me and you was taken by deity himself. And through his sacrifice, the wrath of God for sin was satisfied. And all who trust in the work of Christ the gospel, the good news, their sins are atoned for. What incredible grace and mercy. What beautiful plan of God that we are unholy, yet all justice for our sin he put on himself, on Christ, on the cross. So let's pick up in Isaiah 6 again, verse 5. So Isaiah says, woe is me. He's undone. There's nowhere to hide, fully known before a holy God. And then look what happens in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew over to him, having in his hand burning a coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. In verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Our holy God is a God of grace, church. Aren't we glad? Aren't we, aren't we excited that our God is full of grace, that he doesn't leave Isaiah on the floor to disintegrate in the presence of his holiness. Rather, he atones and forgives his sin with a coal from the burning altar. Isaiah's sins are atoned for. And this is a glimpse, church, of the atoning work of the cross to come. And look at Isaiah's response in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go before us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. How can Isaiah respond in this way? A minute ago, he was just on the ground, undone, disintegrating, if you will, wishing the roof would fall on him, that he could get away from a holy God. Now, he's almost a new person. What is the explanation of this? What happened? And we see it right there in verse 7. His sin was atoned for. His heart was made clean. He was in right standing with a holy God. Christian, this is what happens to us when we trust and believe in the work of Christ. Our sins are atoned for. We are forgiven. Our guilt, is wa waste, or our guilt is washed away and we are in right standing with God. 
once enemies of God because of sin, now are in right standing because he has atoned for our sin. So you see, holiness doesn't come from trying to live holy. When God says in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy, he's not saying try harder to do good works and be a good person. All over scripture, the Old and New Testament, we see none is righteous, none is is good, none seek God. Only God is holy, we are not. So our journey to holiness begins and ends with beholding a holy God who now by the work of the cross has consecrated you as holy. Our journey to holiness begins and ends with beholding a holy God who now, by the work of the cross, has consecrated you as holy. This is unbelievable, incredible. Only God could do this. Hung where you should have been. Only God could take Isaiah and cleanse his heart and consecrate him as holy to the point where he lifts his voice to God. A minute ago he was on the floor, and now he's looking at God, saying, Here I am, Lord, send me. His heart was changed. He was purified. His sin was atoned for. Only God could look at the nation of Israel and say, Be holy as I am holy, because he had consecrated them and had a plan in place to make them holy. Only God can take my and your screwed up, sinful, broken heart. By the beauty of the gospel, call you beloved, holy, children of the Most High. Church, if you're trying to live a holy life apart from the gospel, you will walk away frustrated and you continue on a path leading you to destruction. Don't miss that today. If you're trying to just be good and live a holy life apart from surrendering and believing the gospel, you have it wrong. Our holiness comes from knowing and beholding God through the atoning work of Christ crucified. Nothing else. Nothing else. Christ alone. This is why we say being a Christian is not about behaving, but beholding. What we believe about God will dictate how we behave, meaning that when we believe and trust in Christ, we are declared righteous and justified by his work, and then we receive the Holy Spirit, God in us. From the Holy Spirit, In us, we are given vision to know the things of God. We are consecrated holy. He has called us holy. He has justified us by the work of the cross. And then we are sealed by his spirit in our hearts. We obey God now. We are holy now because his Holy Spirit dwells in us. So you can see a paradox here of holiness. And we've been declared holy by God and have the Holy Spirit in us. But holiness is not meant to be a passive pursuit. Meaning, we can't be just sitting around in our holiness. Paul says in Romans, you know, it's like, does that mean because grace abounds that sin should also abound, that we can just do whatever we want? He's saying, no, no. It's not meant to be passive. He writes in Philippians 2, therefore, as my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but in more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So practically, Christian, your pursuit of holiness comes from knowing what God commands in Scripture. And doing it through the power of God's Spirit in you. Knowing that you are still by nature and in your flesh a sinner who will fail obeying God. But... God has forgiven your sins and continues to forgive your sins by the work of Christ on the cross. And he has given you the Holy Spirit to renew, to restore, and to guide you. This is good news. So you are holy because of Christ. You are called to be holy. And you are constantly being made more like Christ 
by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we call sanctification. So, when we can, so you can say that we're also being made holy every minute by God himself. He has declared you holy because Christ has taken your sin and your sins are atoned for. But he is renewing you and calling you to deeper obedience, deeper faith, deeper things. These things are, you've been justified by faith, but you're being sanctified into his likeness. So the main point again today is God calls us to be holy, and this only happens by knowing a holy God. It doesn't happen by living a perfect life or trying to be better. It comes by first knowing this Jesus and trusting in his atoning work on the cross. And therefore, we are declared holy and being made holy by him alone. So as we close here this morning, I man, just want to give some to the Christian today who hears the word of God. And um, man, I, I just want you to know, and I'm reminding myself today, that God declares you righteous because of his work, that through the work of Christ crucified, you now are holy, called child, if you have faith in Jesus. And your command for your holiness comes first by believing the gospel. Your command for holiness comes first by believing the gospel. You were bought with a price. You were justified by Jesus, and you are free to walk in holiness with God. So just a couple practical things for you. Man, if you're struggling today to walk in holiness, you're struggling to obey God, your, your life is marked by repetitive sin, and you are broken over that sin, man, I encourage you that there is a God who has forgiven you and is ready for your repentance. And that you can trust that he is good and he will forgive. Trust the gospel again. Remind yourself that you were not bought with your own ability to save yourself, but you were bought with a God who stepped in and took your punishment. There's freedom and forgiveness. And also, man, I would ask the questions, when's the last time, if you're struggling on this topic of being obedient and holiness, when's the last time you met with this God? and sat with him. Isaiah was with God, and he experienced God in his holy wonder, and then immediately his heart is changed, and he says, I'm ready to go, God. Send me. So if you're struggling with obedience, and you're struggling to this faith and walking with Jesus, man, I would ask you, when's the last time you sat down and listened and prayed and let God renew you through his Holy Spirit? When's the last time you opened his word and let it pour into you and renew and change you? And also we can trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that if you are saved and you are redeemed, the Holy Spirit will complete its work in you. Man, the sins that I struggled with when I was 14 years old, when I was really growing the faith, are different today. I still struggle with a lot of the same sins, and I struggle with holiness today. But man, God has done a work in me over 10 years, I'm not 24, over however many years I am. And so God is constantly renewing you and me drawing us in, drawing us closer. This is sanctification for us. Man, if you're in the room and you're not a believer, man, I, I think I would be, it would be very hateful for me to not be honest with you. Scripture would say, man, if you're not trusting in Christ today and you're, that your unbelief and your rebellion and your sin, you are an enemy of God, deserving judgment and condemnation. But don't miss it today. God loved you with a holy love like no other. He put your penalty, your punishment, the wrath for your sin on himself because Jesus, your sin has been atoned for. That's the opportunity you have today to respond to believe in a God who loves you and has given his life for you, to be renewed by his work, to be forgiven by his work. So I encourage you, trust and believe in this gospel. Trust and believe in this gospel. So God, we come before you this morning asking, God, that you would renew us with your Holy Spirit. God, you call us to be holy.
and on our own, God, that is not possible. I seek so many other things. I look at so many things and say, God, that is so much better than you. I want that now and rebel against a God who is perfect in goodness, perfect in holiness and deserves. I don't get what I deserve, Lord. We don't get what we deserve. God, you have paid a great debt on a cross for us. So God, we ask that you would renew us today. Remind us of the gospel today. Help us to walk confidently knowing that you are renewing us. And for the unbeliever in the room, for the unbeliever watching online, for those that are trusting still in their work, still in themselves, still in their own heart to figure it out, and they're, they're, they're full of unbelief, God, I pray that you would grab their heart. And if that is you this morning, wherever you are, man, the prayer that is simple for you, there's nothing magic about the prayer, but all you do is cry out to God and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against you. I deserve punishment but I trust in the work of Christ. I need your forgiveness through Christ, Jesus. I believe and trust in you. So God, we surrender to you. We ask now as we sing that you continue just to let these things just sink into our hearts. We love you, Lord. We need you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Thank you for tuning in to the Refuge Church Podcast. For more sermons or to learn how you can give to Refuge, check out our website at refugejackschurch.com. For those who have heard the gospel and believe the gospel, go out living the gospel. You are sent.